0: Cinema Club. I'm
1: James Rosinka. and I'm Andres Laurente And on the Two Real Cinema Club, uh, every other week or so, we watch a couple of films, and usually one is new and one is old, and we talk about them. We make some comparisons between the two. Lately, we've talked about them a lot. I think we hit ninety <laughs> minutes last week. Is that right? An okay. hour and a
0: half. Yes, almost as long as half of Avatar Way of Water, yes.
1: <laughs> I felt like we really were sort of channeling uh, Cameron. I feel like I've been in the abyss, and I told you before, I actually went back and watched uh, probably 30 minutes of uh, special features on the DVD, which mm. finally came from the library. So uh, I'm still, I still have like half, half, what, half a foot, one foot in the, in the ocean, and <laughs> I'm just coming to the surface now. Oh, taking a
0: deep breath. Mm-hmm. Right, um... Uh, let's do let's do the socials uh you can find us on Twitter at two realcine club at twitter.com we're on instagram at two real cinema club at instagram.com you can read our blog at 2 real cinema club.com. that's probably the first place to go if you want to to harangue us or you can email us at the two at two real cinema club at gmail.com Please, if you're enjoying the show, tell your friends, tell your enemies, tell Passersby on the Street. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you or they get your podcasts, and YouTube as well. So there's no excuse. Uh, this week, we have oh, – there's going to be a whole bunch of oh, – or we have a feast for you, uh, oh, I, yeah. a, a smorgasbord of entertainment. What are we watching this week?
1: We are watching uh, The Menu – uh, which just came out, uh, I think, uh, end of 2022. So it's uh, it's fresh, and less fresh, but equally good. Uh, Babette's Feast, which I think is 1987. I yeah. want to say, yeah, yeah,
0: 87.
1: So this is a good spread here of about what, 25 plus 13, 22 plus 13, 30.
0: Is that 35 years? 35 years. Yeah, 35 years. That, that's long enough to make a really really good cheese, isn't it? Yeah, oh, it's a, it's a good vintage, <laughs> isn't what it is? Yes. <laughs> So, so uh so you're doing the menu why don't you uh tell me what the story is i'd be happy to give
1: you a little background first it's a 35 million dollar film it's already made double that last i checked um and it's already on i think it's netflix here is it on a streaming service with you It's Disney
0: Plus in the UK, yeah, which feels like a a bit of a strange bedfellow for this movie. But yeah, yeah, they're the people who've ended up with it here.
1: It does. So for for me, it's sort of like it's proving that these new models can work because I think it had certainly a release. I saw it in the theatres here, or I saw it arrive in uh, probably November, December. Um, I just saw it about two weeks ago, I think, in the theatre. So it's still in the theatre here in Portland. Um, but I also, then I noticed right after that, oh, I could have stayed at home and watched this on Netflix, but I was happier (laughs) to see it on a big screen, honestly. Um, and it's, it's an hour and 47 minutes. You don't need that pee break. It's like the perfect length film. Yes. Um, I liked that a lot. I think both of these films are actually considerably shorter. They're about the same length, Bobette's Feast Mm. and The Menu. Compared to so we watched probably half as much. No wonder the weeks went by so quickly. I felt like I had free time. <laughs> That's where something.
0: my energy has come from yeah. this week.
1: Yeah, it was about half as much as watching uh, Avatar and The Abyss. Um, so what I consider like a perfect length. That's fantastic for this kind of film. Uh, written by Seth Weiss, who comes from uh, the satirical uh, American newspaper called The Onion.
0: Mm, yeah. yeah, they build
1: themselves as. Uh, America's finest news source. Um, he's also done late night television um, for Seth Myers, who's one of these night, uh, late night uh, sort of talk show hosts here in the States. Uh, and the other writer is Will Tracy, who writes, um, oddly enough, he also writes for a talk show here. Um, for John Oliver, who has an HBO. Show. <sighs> John Oliver's an Englishman who's come over here and found a lot of success, and Will Tracy's one of his writers. But uh, Will Tracy also writes for Succession. So this sort of comes out of Succession," which is an excellent HBO series. I think you probably
0: have it there. I think yeah I, I think it might be on Apple TV in this country. Oh, that's so strange. Uh, which is which is the one streaming service that nobody has I think. So so yeah <laughs> okay. we don't have it in this house. I think it is available somewhere in the um, UK. Uh, lots of English connections there because uh, Jesse
1: Armstrong who uh, did Peep Show and In the Loop is really the creator and one of the you know major writers on Succession which I love. We watch it uh, religiously. We're very much looking forward to the uh, upcoming season. Um And um, let's see, oh, Mark Millad, who's uh, sort of one of the chief directors now. He's sort of become the go-to director for Succession. Um, He did stints with uh, Shameless in the UK, I believe, and Game of Thrones. Yeah.
0: But I think this is his feature debut in the film world, um, which is... uh... Well, I I read that he... He directed Ali G in the House, which is which oh. was a UK feature film oh. spin-off of the Ali G TV series. Uh-huh. So, so I think it's not necessarily his first feature, but he, okay. maybe it's his first proper feature.
1: Yeah, I don't remember seeing that. Either I I didn't see that as a feature film when I saw it on IMDb, or maybe it didn't come up. I don't know if that was ever released in the States, to be honest. I only saw oh, Ali G when not. I lived in England. Yeah. yeah. Um, uh, and someone else to mention is is Malad's wife, um, Amy Westcott, who does an amazing costume design on this uh, film, part mm. of the art direction department. I thought uh, costumes were really good, so I wanted to mention her as well. Um, and apparently uh, Will Tracy pitched this to Malad when they were working on Succession. Um, and I guess it's based on uh, Will Tracy had vacationed in Norway and ate on an island and huh. uh, he was—he realized he was trapped until the end of the meal, and then his imagination went wild. <laughs> so it's just—I think the great source material is—you're having a meal on some remote island in Norway, uh, not far from will be where we'll be in our second film. It's already a connection. Yeah. Um, but the story is basically twelve clients are paying about a thousand dollars apiece to uh, arrive on this remote island. Um, it's got these beaches that are just littered with driftwood that look like dead bodies. And I think it's very foreboding. And it's just uh, some of those early images really set the film up beautifully. Uh, they're there to visit a restaurant run by superstar chef uh, Sloick, played by Ray Fiennes. Um, and he lives there with his entire staff in this very austere and disciplined work camp, really. It feels uh, more like a, a camp than a restaurant. Uh, Nicholas Holt plays Tyler. And I didn't realize until later, he was the young boy from the film About a Boy.
0: I knew I recognized him. Ah, I didn't know that. The only thing I remembered him from is from uh, Mad Max Fury Road. Oh, okay, okay. I remembered him as a kid. I kept
1: thinking, he's one of those Mm. moments where I'm thinking, oh, who is that? I've seen him before. I've seen him 20 years ago (laughs) when he was a child. Um, He plays a character named Tyler who brings Margot, who's played by Anya Taylor-Joy. Um, And she's an unexpected guest. This is a very well-organized restaurant, so they're expecting certain people. They've got their names. They've done some background history on them. um, And Margot is unexpected. Um, And this clearly is not going to be a typical meal delivered from uh, Chef Slowek, who uh, says to his elite customers, we are a nanosecond. Nature is timeless. (laughs) It's (laughs) very sort of... uh, um, uh, sermon-like or uh, uh, preacher-like uh, chef. Uh, he's worshipped for sure, so his words are um, quite high. There's a lot of uh, high-minded uh, language in this film, which is lovely. Um, and we sort of know things that are going to go high wire when the diners are, they're not fed bread early on, which is wonderful, but instead they get the sermon about bread. Um, it's the food of the common man and that these people are not common. They've paid 1200 bucks a piece to, to sit down and eat his food. Uh, when uh, the maitre d'Elsa uh, intimidates the, that the guests will eat less than they desire and more than they deserve, we know this <laughs> film is not going to end well. Uh, but that's the beauty of the film and the, the, the delightful uh, uh, nature of it. Um, so through his artful cooking, Slowick exposes the crimes and transgressions of his guests. Uh, they are a, a, sort of a band of corporate evildoers, uh, film actors with no standards. Those are hard to find. I suppose (laughs) this is, or philanderers. uh, But he can't figure out Margot because they don't know anything about her, and he he thinks she's a giver, whereas all these other people are takers. Um, So she definitely stands out from the other guests, and she's not eating the food really. Um, So he he's there to punish them, uh, but Margot sort of represents this problem that he can't solve just because he doesn't know who she is. The male diners realize that they're, well, all all the diners realize that they're uh, under threat. They're stuck there. And the male diners are um, allowed to sort of make an attempt at an escape, um, which doesn't go particularly well. Uh, The (laughs) women uh, take that moment to have this sort of awkward bonding moment over some food. Um, Not before, um, not long before Margot is put in this position to battle Elsa. Elsa's this kind of um, very stern, but also very... uh, um, I don't know, almost violent, menacing kind of uh, maitre d'. Um, and they're in this sort of kitchen full of deadly utensils. Um, there's this incredibly long, I think it was a boning knife. I don't know my knives that well, but um, that comes in handy. Um, and it's never good when there's a very long boning knife involved. <laughs> <all day. laughs> it's Chekhov's boning knife, isn't it? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Uh, Tyler, that's Margot's date. The guy who brought her uh, t- on this uh, this journey. Um, his fault is simply being a sycophant. Um, he he begins as a sycophant, and despite his knowledge and his like photographic library of great food, uh, he's basically only learned to take pictures and brag about the great food he's eaten. So everyone has their their sort of uh, idiosyncrasy that uh, that offends uh, Chef Slowik. Um, he takes a particular, and we don't know why originally why he takes a particularly dis, disliking for uh, to for Tyler, um, and he forces Tyler to cook and ends up creating something that the chef calls Tyler's bullshit, <laughs> and he must be uh, punished. Um, and one thing I loved about the film is you do you sort of see uh, these images of the food and they they. On With on-screen uh, text, they tell you what the food is, uh, what the name of the dish is, what it includes for ingredients. Um, and Tyler's bullshit is no exception. They give him uh, the <laughs> uh, the treatment as well. Uh, I should mention that I'm uh, pescatarian. Uh, mm. And the menu is definitely a film for those who like their meals on the bloody side.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, having <laughs> disclosed that, I do... I loved... Uh, the red meat uh, whimsically served up in the film um, and the nods to the cooking shows. I love that just with these images and dish names and ingredients. I thought that was a really nice touch, uh, given that a lot of these reality cooking shows are huge here in the States right now. Um, the chef's lament is basically that he, he sort of tasked himself with satisfying... Uh, this ilk of people who are absolutely impossible to satisfy. Um, (laughs) Ultimately, Margot challenges him to serve a simple cheeseburger because she's hungry, uh, given the nature of what has been served, which is very little food, honestly. Uh, And the cheeseburger ends up being a savior of uh, sorts in this film. And we'll get into some of the details, I think, uh, later. But um, I, I think... I looked at your show notes and I think you're going to make a call to the cliche squad. I, I have it down here that I'm not really, but I know what you're going to say. And right, it's exactly what uh... I predicted that you might, what what you might say. So I don't know if we want to start with a cliche or if you want to save that for later, but um, I have lots of thoughts, but I
0: want to hear um, what you have to say about the film first. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, i to withhold my cliche squad nice. call, nice. yeah, for another five or ten minutes. Okay, <laughs> um, the film gets a brief respite. Um, I didn't know very much about this film going into it, and judging by the poster that I'd seen locally and the thumbnail that's on the streaming service, I was expecting a kind of horror film with a bit of a satirical edge. Yeah, and I don't think that's what it is. If I had to put a stamp on this film, I would call it a comedy. It's a very, very black comedy, yeah um, but it didn't surprise me to learn that the writers are people who've come up through the kind of the, you know the talk show, the onion, the kind of the the, the comedy writing circuit, because it's clearly it's a comedy, yeah um, and I did laugh out loud a few times mm-hmm. during the the film, um, most notably, uh, the scene that you talked about earlier on, where uh, um, Rafe finds you know he he tells the diners pretty early on it's not much of a spoiler he kind of says well we're all going to die tonight Um, but he gives the men in the party this chance to run away even the character who's uh, had a finger cut off um, you know who who spends most of the film sitting in a corner feeling sorry for himself he mumbles something to his wife about I'll send help and then then kind of limps away towards the camera (laughs) Um, you know and that did did summon a, a genuine chuckle but I didn't laugh a lot. And I think if a film um, is going to be a comedy, um, I would like to have you know, three or four good laughs in the film. And I don't yeah. think it does quite reach that threshold. You know, It's amusing um, and it's satirical and it was quite funny. I think I only laughed out loud the one time. Oh, okay. Uh, but uh, did you think it was funny? Did you think it needed to be funny?
1: Um, I think it was, it was funny enough. We, I saw it with my wife and stepson and we laughed a lot, but I did notice that we were, I think we were the the loudest laughers and the only ones who laughed uh, more than probably 10 or 15 times. So, um, I think we, it really appealed to our sense of humor, I think, and black comedy. And I think we really, we really did enjoy it. So I, I did see it as a comic uh, horror film, um, and it's not; it's by no means the the cliche standard horror film, and I think that's why I liked it so much. It was just very black uh, humor that I think had very, very real objectives. I think there are some some statements that they're trying to really um, convey to the viewers, and I think it came out really well in that in that regard.
0: I mean, I I, I am slightly scratching my head at the end because I feel like it, you it, the film does feel like it's trying to say something in a loud and clear voice, um, but I'm not utterly sure what the thing it's trying to say is i mean i i appreciate you know that it's commenting satirically on the kind of cultish aura that surrounds celebrity chefs and you know even recently I've, there have been um in the news stories about uh, real life bullying and real life you know drama um prefer uh, for people working for famous chefs so you know i can clearly believe that the food service industry is hell um, and I can clearly believe that there is a kind of cultish aura um, around these kind of um, famous chefs but I think if you wanted to make a film about um, you know a cult surrounding a chef this isn't necessarily the right film or the right story to do it with you know and is it kind of saying is it saying that this kind of haute cuisine you know is all a, a, a bit of a sham and it will never beat a good cheeseburger? Is it saying that high-end restaurants are all kind of just dumb and stupid? Because um, the film both sort of respects this haute cuisine and hates it at the same time. So I came away not entirely sure whether, whether the film had the attitude that restaurants like this should be torn down or whether they should be celebrated.
1: Yeah, I I get that. I think, yeah, I think you've got a good point there. Um, for me, I think uh, if it were, as you said, sort of more comic, I think it probably would have parodied the, the industry and the the cooking show uh, fad uh, a lot better. Um, but I think it ends up being much more about um, the wealthy who can afford a meal like that and the working class who actually have to prepare it. And it's true that we've got a lot of restaurants here that are not operating at full staff because they can't get people to go in there and stand ah. for 8 and 12 hours a day in the kitchen, which is a very hot place at a, you know, a a livable salary, but not really a one where you can uh, save. Um, so th- there's that dynamic of, you know, very well to do diners sitting in these beautiful rooms. Um, but uh, you know, underpaid staff, overworked staff, miserable staff, actually creating the meals. So I, for me, it's much more about class than it is just roasting um, celebrity chefs and their shows. If that makes sense to you.
0: Yeah. Um... <sighs> I do uh, I see what you mean about that um, notion about being unable to staff restaurants. I mean, this is a whole kind of post-pandemic phenomenon, isn't it, that people have kind of suddenly realised that you don't need to work these dumb, terrible jobs for minimum wage because, well, actually it's possible to survive without them. And it's a bit of a kind of positive sea change for society as a whole. Um, Aside from my kind of confusion about exactly what the film wants to say, I also kind of came away from it feeling like there are enough elements of the story that don't quite add up for it to impair my enjoyment. I'm sorry to kind of come down on this film because I did enjoy it. And there's a lot of craft here. Yeah. Um, you know, a lot of great performances, beautiful photography. Um, you know, there's lots of great stuff to enjoy. But I did spend some of my time watching the film, asking myself, why is this happening? Why is that happening? You know, the guests have all been told they're going to be killed and once the first death occurs. You know, which clearly it must seem pretty serious, and yet somehow everybody seems to be hypnotized. Yeah. People don't really try and fight back. I mean, to the extent even that um, that Ray Fines character tells all of the the guests, you know, none of you fought back. I thought you would fight back a little bit more than you did. You've disappointed me. Yeah. You know, th- th- these people accept their fate so easily that even the film. Questions them, which is a kind of, you know, having your cake and eating it moment, isn't it? Yeah. You know, they couldn't write the resistance, but they were aware that the resistance was absent. So commented on the script. There's this early moment when um, Tyler, who's the kind of the the foodie um, and Margot, who's his kind of supposedly his girlfriend, um Turn up, and it turns out that you know Margot's name is not the one that's on the reservation, and Tyler is extremely embarrassed and you know it, and it's this kind of quite sort of nice uh, bit of sort of social um you know embarrassment where it looks like oh it's he's put his ex girlfriend's name on the on the invitation, and then mm-hmm. you know has he told the new girlfriend about the old girlfriend how does she feel about it? Is she being replaced? you know how do you feel about going on on the you know the, the holiday that your boyfriend booked with his his ex wife mm-hmm um and then later on in the film about halfway through it turns out that tyler has just hired margot for the evening to accompany him in mm-hmm. which case there's no reason for him to be embarrassed that her name isn't on the uh on the reservation um you know and he, you know he's paying for her services and he has no reason to feel you know sheepish yeah um so it feels a little bit like you know, the film, again, is having its cake and eating it. And there were enough of these moments that didn't quite meet together mm. that le- left me feeling um, like the, the film was a hermetic whole, it didn't totally function as a plot, but also didn't totally function as a metaphor. And so it's kind of fallen between these two stools and, and um, hit the kitchen floor. Yeah, For, for me, I didn't, I didn't feel that. I'm,
1: I'm, I definitely see what you're saying. Um, in terms of Tyler, I mean, his—I think his um, fault is, yeah, just that he he will accept whatever the chef says and serves uh, without any objection whatsoever. Uh, there's just no. There's no reflection on you know whether it's good, actually really good food, or if it's uh, if it's uh, nutritious or anything like that. It's more that you know he's just in love with the celebrity culture of it all, and he's just you know he's taking photos as if the are works of art, the, the food's works of art, um, and he'll do anything that the chef says to a fault ultimately. Um, and I think in terms of objections, I think it really kind of is a film about objections in the sense that I think we we. We worship the wealthy and the famous so much that we don't really question the the underlying system that makes them wealthy and famous. And I think that's what this film is about. So I think it's kind of appropriate that they don't object too much and they don't try and get away because they just were in this habit of thinking, oh, well, if they're rich and famous, if they're powerful, then... Whatever they're doing is absolutely right. Um, so we <laughs> defer to whatever their whatever their uh, actions are, not knowing fully what their motivations are. I think so. I think it makes sense, especially if they're on an island. Um, and it is a really, it's, you use the word hermetically, I mean, the whole place is kind of like hermetically sealed. There's bulletproof glass that we see at one point that just will mm-hmm. not shatter. There's this great door that just sort of uh, slides back into place. It's a swiveling door and they really have no escape. And it's its, it's very ironic that they the men are given this moment to escape because they're definitely not going to escape. Um, I see how that could be sort of a plot hole and it might... Detract from the actual power of the film, but I think it's it's sort of all there for a purpose. I think um, that it's we we don't have any objections. We don't seem to make any objections that are that are lasting or or forceful about you know what puts these people in power. Um, and why we listen to them in the first place um, and you know the, the the absolutely obsequious crew the the you know the chef's assistants and the cooks following him sort of uh, underline that from the other side I see that like the, the wealthy diners and the kitchen staff as being polar opposites but they're all sort of um, I don't know you know they' are seconds they're they're um, minions to the these, these great leaders, these celebrity chefs or the I think one of the partners in the restaurant is, what I could tell, maybe like a tech billionaire or something like that, and some of his employees and CEOs are are at the dinner as well. So I, I think that's what it is. There's this sort of a this duality between the 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 rich and the poor that's pretty well illustrated
0: here. Speaking of the the kind of the whole drama being hermetically sealed, I tell you what this this film really wants to be. I think is a play. I I think. Um, if someone is clever, they would take this script and this scenario and turn it into a play. And it could be, you know, yeah. an absolutely storming play. It all yeah, happens yeah. in one place. Yeah. Um, you know, you have a you know relatively small cast, you could enjoy the the um you know the the contrast between the kitchen and the, the kind of the, the, the customers. Um, you know, lots of clever stuff you could do with it uh, on stage. You know, you could even serve the audience these little amuse bouche as they're waiting to go in. I mean, yeah. it, 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 this this would be a perfect play. Yeah, I think, I think yeah. it's much better suited to to theatre than it is to cinema. I think I agree with you. Yeah, and that did that did occur to me as well.
1: Ah, Let's. T- oh dare I say, possibly a musical as well. I think you could have some very <laughs> oh, funny yes. songs about s'mores and, uh, yes, amuse bush and uh, <laughs> I think there could be a lot of great songs. But I'm not a musical fan myself, but I think this could be a very, very entertaining one. Yeah, I mean, it, it definitely, other than, you know, the fairy shots getting there um, and a little bit of stuff that happens on the grounds of the, of the uh, uh, island restaurant, um, most of it does play, take place between a kitchen and dining room, which is really just one space. And I guess I think it's a beautiful space. I love the art direction on this film. I think the, you know, all the filmmaking is just top notch. Uh, it's framed very beautifully. As I mentioned before, I think the, the set design, but also the costume design is like perfect. It really characterizes the students, uh, the st- <laughs> teacher talk, their students, <laughs> characterizes <laughs> the uh, the cast and the characters perfectly. Um so, I mean, I really love this film a lot. I mean, I think for me, the faults kind of fall along. Um, I I hated seeing the crew be so um, deferential to the chef going along with this crazy plan around this meal. Um, and I know the film sort of has to, given its set up, end with a great deal of violence and murder and such. But, um, you know, I don't think it helps the revolutionary cause in the sense that you know what, is the working class always going to be a violent mob as opposed to, like, this thinking body that can actually um, make change. So that was one thing that bothered me quite a bit. I think they were just all way too
0: um, subservient to to a chef. I mean, maybe we'll talk about this after we talk about Babette's Feast, but if it Feels very much to me like a, a film about food in the age of late stage capitalism. This yep. film, mm, yep. um, it's you know, it's absolutely it's a divided world, isn't it? There's a you know a clear line between the rich and the poor, those who have and those who give it to them. Um, you know that's all that it's about. I, you, I know you alluded to this earlier. Um, I'm going to do it now. I go think for go for I, it. Even though you enjoyed the film, I am going to put in a call yep. to the Cliché Squad. cliche squad. Uh, and my complaint uh, is a simple one, which is that uh, how often do we have to see a Hollywood film where uh, the main character or the main character who is a young woman is a sex worker? <laughs> um, uh, Margot could have had all sorts of different jobs; she doesn't have to be a sex worker. Um, so to have this revelation that um, that you know she's a, a girlfriend for hire um, just feels. Uh, like a really kind of a pretty cheap and unpleasant um, cliche, I think, which I think takes away a lot of the agency that the woman otherwise has though I did a little count up there are there are four young women in the film isn 't it one of them the main one is a sex worker and then the others are defined as a sexual assault survivor mm-hmm. there 's a jealous second in command, and then there 's a woman who 's been stealing from her boss that's that 's what this film thinks about young women basically yeah um Margo could easily have just been tyler 's new girlfriend. You know, or or maybe he's you know he's she could be um, the girlfriend that he's hoping to break up with, and this is you know the dinner that he's going to tell her about um, how you know it's it's over between them. You know, she could have been someone who used to be a waitress, and so she has worked on the other side of that divide between yeah. the kitchen and the dining room. There's lots of possibilities. Sex worker is not. Yeah. not the the best solution to this problem
1: okay 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 I'm I, I I accept um but <laughs> I think I have a theory on this and oh. I, I will start by saying I thought she was going to be a waitress or waiter as well ah, because right, yeah. he, he talked about her chef said are you in, in the industry I think it's kind of this loose language of okay what industry are we talking about but I assumed that she'd been a restaurant worker in some capacity um but when you think of horror films I think, this is a cliché built on another cliché. I think the general cliché in horror films is that the people who have sex are the first ones to get killed, right? <laughs> um, and it's as if horror film are encouraging teen abstinence or something like that because uh, it's inevitable that if there's a teen couple that ends up having sex, they're like the first ones who, who go. And I think this reverses the myth in the sense that she's a sex worker and she ends up with the best outcome of all the characters. Um, so that's maybe... Stretching it a little bit, pulling at strings, but I think it sort of reverses the general sex myth in horror films. But I I do agree with you. I think there there are millions of other professions she could have had and probably had more believably because her a lot of her um, characteristics don't really fall in with what we consider the stereotypical sex worker um, qualities. But my wife had pointed out that her dress was shabbier than the others, so there was this, definitely this <laughs> sense of clothing, mm. like... Um, and again, that was a a detail that I barely caught. Um, but if you look at the dress of everyone else, I mean, the people in the dining room are dressed very, very well. Um, and she's just a little dressed down. And I think that makes a big difference, but yeah, I think, I think she could have been any other, um, uh, job holder. I mean, it was basically the, the, uh, this idea that she was a giver. That was the other thing that he was, he was playing, he was playing the takers against the givers and he recognized in her a giver.
0: I, I I want I wonder whether it just reflects the proportion of young women who uh people who are high up in Hollywood meet who turn out to be sex workers because yeah. <laughs> this is the way the whole Hollywood views young women. Uh, I do have one other one 100. other charge that I would like the cliché squad to look into which is um the the use of a, like a, a sudden unexpected dramatic suicide yeah. as a plot device. Um, again which I kind of feel I have seen a little bit too often you're, you know you're building up to something a little bit unpleasant and there's you know, a bit of a build up oh and then somebody produces a gun and blows their brains mm-hmm. out and and um, again it feels like a little bit of an easy story beat which I've seen you know just a little bit too often now I, f- I find those things um, those kind of events grotesque and disturbing and I always have to look away from the screen I find it mm. very very unpleasant to watch yeah and um, it, it strikes me as it's a, it's a kind of a plot point. Of last resort. And again, you know, there could be like a, you know, a slightly clever, cleverer, shocking event um, that could help turn the corner here rather than, you know, using this, this kind of the same one that we've seen so many times. Yeah, the whole film to me, you know, it's been photographed beautifully. Great cast um, who do very well with the material they're given. But I personally feel. You know, could have had another couple of drafts, could have tied the whole thing together just just a little bit more tightly. It doesn't quite hang together. And I don't think there's any good reason why it couldn't hang together. Um, I think, you know, a little bit more uh, attention and it could have been really, really special. Whereas uh, there are several points in the film where it feels a little bit, will this do to me? And I'm sorry to say that because I don't want to be down on it. It's actually it's actually an interesting film. And I think it does have something to say. And it's, you know, a lot of very talented people behind it. And I don't want to kind of be a downer, but uh, it's my, my my job to be the naysayer this week.
1: Yeah. Well, yeah, I will be the yaysayer. I think um, <laughs> I loved it. I thought um, you probably have a good point that it could have been better. I think it's just a couple things short of being sort of masterpiece because, uh, you know, the, the, the actual creation, the filmmaking, the production is all fantastic. So you're right. It's a little shy on story and it could have been cleaned up i wonder if it was kind of a rush job given the everyone's work on on you know television and other things going on um and uh, the fact point. that yeah. probably a short shooting schedule also because it's not You know, again there's not a lot of locations or not too many sets as a design there what they do have is designed beautifully um but so i suspect
0: it was a pandemic it, shoot as well i guess wasn't it
1: probably yes yeah, sort of in there somewhere i mean it would have been probably 2021 at some point so yeah i think um that's, that's affected a lot of the films we've seen recently. And I will also say that even if it's not like A-plus material, I think it's one of the best films I saw in 2022. So um, mm-hmm. I'm going to say it's one of the best films of the year, even if it wasn't fully written. So I think it you you probably have a good point that it could have life, does have life as a, a piece of theater or musical. Um, but I, I really do think it was a standout film for the year. And yeah, I, I definitely... I'm not a horror film, but I don't really consider this anything more than black humor. It definitely has horror elements, and I think it really it plays that genre pretty well without really buying into all of its uh, trappings. So I'm going to say it's a great film. Um, of course, it could have been a little bit better, a little bit better, and uh, I wish it had been, but.
0: I'm going to take it as it is, and I will say yay. So we've got nays and yays here today. Nays and yays. I'll tell you what, if you see Mark Millard um, telling him that we are available to do rewrites on the <laughs> musical version. So <laughs> that would we'll, be we'll tidy up those loose ends. OK, tight, let's have a break, the last, and then yeah. we will come back for, for, uh, for our second course, uh, our entree, do uh, you think? Ooh, I don't yeah, know. Ooh. Maybe this is the dessert, the, it, the sweet the sweet food to follow on. Uh, we're going to come back, and we will talk about The Bet's Feast.
1: the world is getting crazier every year and every day kind of argue for that yeah that's just a fact of life and i'm going to go across the decades um recently we've seen dr gower taste poison to confirm that it was poison in It's a Wonderful Life. Do you remember that?
0: <laughs> I do. Yes.
1: And then that was two podcasts ago. Last podcast, we saw Dr. Lindsay Brigman taste seawater to confirm <laughs> that it was seawater in the abyss. That's
0: how science works, man. You can't deny that.
1: And once, Jimmy, I was on a bus in Ecuador <laughs> when the fare collector, sort of like the, the chauffeur of the bus or conductor, um, tore a corner off of my $5 U.S. bill to determine whether it was counterfeit by tasting it. I kid you not. Imagine my surprise when he spat it out, claimed it was a fake, and then kept it for himself. (laughs) So you can understand why I'm happy to introduce to our listeners our newest sponsor, Kleptocurrency. (laughs) Jimmy, I don't need to explain to you or our listener... How our financial lives are getting more and more complicated. Inflation on the rise, stock market volatility, retirement accounts subject to considerable loss of value, wage stagnation, low interest rates on the most basic savings accounts, roller coaster real estate markets, the government, every government, always wants more of your hard earned cash. What should we do with our money? How should we invest? That's where kleptocurrency comes in. Simply put, we make money disappear (laughs) (laughs) to a realm you can or might be able to access later. Gone are the days of monies and mattresses or the dirty old times of laundering money through shell companies and businesses. No more Swiss and Bahamian middlemen, bankers skimming off the top. No more clumsy coinage to carry around. No more paper money ripping and tearing. Paper money? Think about that for a moment. A scrap of paper could represent the difference between great poverty and great wealth. Gone are the days of this antiquated conception of value. No more tasting of that dirty paper money to evaluate its veracity. At kleptocurrency, we don't use paper and we can't be authenticated in any way. We use highly secured, triple encrypted algorithms to take your money. And store it in our airtight servers that are so hard to compromise because they are hidden all around the world. They're so secret that even we don't know where to find them. There's no compromising security with kleptocurrency. It's safe and better gone than never. And the best part is you can do all your banking investing with us from any electronic device, really, any electronic device (laughs) use your blackberry uh xbox electric toothbrush or your ipod we don't care we'll take your money any way you can lose it to us no handshakes with your friendly local banker during these times of pandemic and contagion no unnecessary knowledge of where your money is or who controls it just visit us at kleptocurrency.com dot com dot mit dot a dot crime this week that's (laughs) kleptocurrency dot commit a crime but for your security we migrate our websites often so you may be notified of some location changes for your peace of mind digital investment is no longer just for fools we can all be soon parted from our money kleptocurrency (laughs) we're the Moses is of the parting of the currencies. <laughs> Welcome back everyone. We are headed into another Tasting room of cinema. Uh, we're going to talk about uh, Babette's Feast or Babette's Gestebud, uh from 1987.
0: And uh, I had to get you to introduce that because I can't say that Gastbude. <laughs> I can't. Say that. I'm not sure. I'm not sure I can say it either. I know when I'm beaten. Gastbude. I like saying it. Now, you've you've seen this before, hadn't you? I had never seen this. That's right. That's right. Well, this came up
1: um, on a popcorn counter a long time ago
0: when we talked about food.
1: Uh, and I remembered that you hadn't seen it, so that's why I suggested it um, for this podcast. I s- I've seen it at least, this would have been at least the third time, probably fourth, mm. and it's, it's a little bit like my Bergman thing, where I saw a lot of Bergman when I was in my 20s, and then I came back to it in my probably mid-30s, and then have come back to
0: it again. So I've seen it in probably at least you know three or four different decades, so I love it. Yeah. Um, I was just going. am glad. I'm glad. I'm catching up with you. Okay. Let, let me. Um. Let me. Let me tell you the story then. Okay. So uh, the Bet's Feast uh, takes place in nineteenth-century Jutland. This is the coast of Denmark. Well, I didn't even know that it was called Jutland. And I was wondering, is that where the word jut comes from? Because oh. it's the bit of Denmark that juts out into the North Sea. Um, but I looked it up and it's not. Oh. So, uh, so Jutland, it's a cold, wet, barely hospitable place. Mm-hmm. And two elderly spinsters, Martine and Philippa, are the last spiritual leaders of a tiny Lutheran sect there. About a dozen devotees remain. They're all in their 70s. They meet in their houses, nestled in the bleak landscape, and they sing songs of devotion, and they discuss scripture. But many, many years before this, like 49 years previously, the two sisters were beautiful young women. Martine was courted by a visiting soldier, Laurens Löwenhelm. Philippa was adored by a, a fated Parisian singer called Achille Papin, who visited the small town. Neither of them married. Um, instead, their, their father um, kept them single so that they could stay by him to help him in his, his, uh, his religious work. And now, 50 years later, they struggled to make ends meet until Babette, a French woman, who has escaped the communard uprising in Paris, arrives at their door. She has lost everything, and she is so desperate that she offers to work for the two sisters for free. So the three women, they settle into a life together uh, in this, uh, this cold, wet Danish landscape, until, finally, after many more years, Babette wins a great sum of money. So... In thanks for the kindness that she's been shown, she promises to create for the sisters and for the faithful a French banquet unlike anything they have ever seen or eaten. And this is Babette's Feast. So the film um, was uh, directed and written by uh, Gabriel Axel. So he's a Danish television comedy director. Uh, He did a lot of French TV uh, shortly before this film. This is by far the most significant and well-known film he made. After this was a, a hit, it won it won um, uh, the Oscar, didn't it, for a non-English language film? Yeah. Um, and so he then you know went on to work in Hollywood briefly. He made uh, a film called Prince of Jutland with Gabriel Byrne and Christian Bale, but not a great deal more came of his career. He wasn't mm. young at the time this film was made. Yeah. Uh, the film is uh, based on a short story by uh, Karen Blixen, publishing under the name of uh, Isaac Dinesen uh she had also written Out of Africa, um, which had been a film, I think, the year before this was released, I think, 86. That was a Meryl Streep that film. Is, yeah. um, the, the book was published in 1958 and uh, true to the principles of the, the two book cinema club. Um, I've, I've read the book this week as well. So I read the short story uh, this week. It's only about 60 pages long. Um, and I'll, I'll simply tell you that the story is very, very, very like the film yeah uh the book is just the same yeah uh so much so that i mean even a lot of the same dialogue um yeah. the film um uses you know, one of my least favorite narrative devices which is um a narrator and uh, even the narrator i think isn't really part of the film i was asking myself towards the end of the film well wait a second who is that narrator i think the narrator is supposed to be Karen Blixen it's Uh not narrated by a character in the film it's an omniscient overlooking narrator who who um, who who, uh, sees the world with uh, an all-seeing eye yeah Uh, the film is populated by actors from some of Europe's um, greatest directors so Ingmar Bergman um, some of his crew turn up in this film Carl um, Dreyer some of his uh, actors turn up in this film, yeah. so it's a kind of you know twentieth um, century European cinema's greatest hits yeah. of uh, these older actors playing these quite small parts. BB Anderson turns up, BB Anderson, in this kind of yeah. tiny, tiny role where she has like sort of three lines. Ah, does she have um, a line? She maybe, uh, yeah, very I think, little, I, very little. So I think, yeah, she dances. She's this uh, kind of yeah, she's this worldly lady who suggests to Lawrence Lervenstein oh, that, that he should he should yeah. go and visit Jutland. Yeah. Um, I say, oh, no, 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 it's to Papin, isn't it? She suggests to the French singer, why don't you go and visit Jutland? It's a lovely place up there. I mean, so, yeah, she's barely in it. It was like a half-day shoot or something yes. like
1: that. Well, she, yeah, she also, she dances with uh, Lorenz at some ball. And I think she, <gasps> she, she's always telling people to go talk to other people. It's this sort of networking role where I think she says, oh, that's the, that's the, the what, the prince over there or the, the, the prime minister. Go talk to him when they're dancing in a ballroom somewhere. So, yeah, it's a very minor role, but she is credited. And I remember seeing her name in the credits and I thought, okay where is she?
0: And that's, all, that's her entire role. And I, I got to say, I am pleased to say after we've clashed um, over the menu, I think this film is pretty much perfect. Yeah. Um, I had such a great time watching it. It's uh, it's a really restrained film. Um, none of the histrionics of the menu. It's a restrained portrait of restrained people. Mm-hmm. And it's it's kind of, it's all about the way that they sort of subsume their passions. Yeah. Um. And, you know, Best of all, for you and me, you know, for, the, for the screenwriter, yeah. um, one of the many joys of this film is that so much of the story is told with looks and glances. Yeah. Um, you know, The dialogue is you know, often fairly minimal, um, uh, not necessarily to the point. Um, it's been you know, economically written. And a lot of the story is just told through people's eyes and the way that they look at the food or each other. Now, I don't like using the word perfect mm. um, I don't think the film is entirely f- faultless um and there is a little bit of exposition and one thing that kind of stands out is there is a scene where Babette explains to the local shopkeeper, she says, oh, my only connection to France is a lottery ticket, mm. which a friend renews for me annually. And it's like, um, you know, we saw uh, Chekhov's boning knife in the first half. And this is Chekhov's yeah. lottery ticket now. <laughs> you know, the moment she mentions that, it's no surprise. Well, that's blooming coming back, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Um, that's, I would, that maybe that is the the only um, unsubtle moment in an yeah. otherwise very understated, subtle movie.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, seeing it again this time round. Did you enjoy it just as much as before? I did, yeah. I sometimes I'm embarrassed to admit
1: how much I like this film. It's just, uh, it's you know, it's definitely not an action film or anything like that. But um, I I kept up with the Razikas in the sense that I read the short story as well. Oh, well done! You're the reader here, <laughs> and uh, uh, it's very loyal to it. To a, it's a great short story. I like the short story as well. Um, but the film is very loyal to that. As you said, some of the dialogue comes right out of there. And I think you've got a good point that the narrator is probably um, Dennison as well, or a Dennison-like character um but it sort of proves that um i think short stories are are better fodder for um feature length films than full novels yeah. are. it's it's manageable and as you said i think it's probably on the order of the version i read was probably about 50 or 60 pages long um so it's, it's it's just less material to cover it it's very it's a very sparse film it's a fairly sparse story as well um but i think it yeah it does everything really really well and it does things that i think in other films would not work so well um, it doesn't, um, well, I liked it a lot. Um, it's,
0: it's sparse, but at no point was I ever, ever bored. Yeah,
1: definitely not. And again, the length, length is perfect. I think it was about the same thing as maybe an hour and 50 minutes or something like that, maybe yeah. a little less than that. So it's not trying to be an epic by any means. Um, and it, you know, it, it starts out with almost immediately this exposition from that narrator, um, giving the, the backstories on the, Uh, Philippa and Martine and, you know, these potential lovers. And you're thinking, why are are we getting all this information? But um, those two characters, even though they're secondary or tertiary, they end up being very important to um, getting Babette to them and also getting to Babette's backstory and and really seeing who she is. Um, Because even though she lives with them for 12 years, they don't know Babette very well until the until the feast. So I, you know, looking at it a bit more critically this time, I thought, okay, why are we getting into all this, this backstory in their lives? And it's, it's actually probably not that long. It might be a 20 minute, um, dive into their, their past lives. Um, but it does all pay off and, and it's sort of, you know, the two potential lovers are not really, um, sympathetic characters when they initially, um, interact with the sisters, but they, they both get redemption sort of at the end. They really have this sort of, uh, this value in their lives because there's not a lot of, you know, there are not a lot of people coming in intermingling with this very, very sort of remote town and it's, and it's community there. So these are, these two, the Paris opera singer and in Achille Papin and, uh, the, the soldier can be, who becomes general, um, are really kind of major guests as far as we can tell, passing through major visitors in the, in the entire history of that village. So, um,
0: I, I did look at the timings, actually, when I was watching the yeah. film and that first act. Yeah. So um, if you imagine that the first act is, you know, that little bit of backstory of the, the lives of the, the, the women when they were young. Yeah. And the visits of the two kind of suitors. That's pretty much exactly 30 minutes. I think Babette okay. arrives at about yeah. the 30 minute yeah. um, mark. And then the final, like the third act which is basically the dinner. The dinner, uh, yeah. Um, that's like the final thirty-five minutes of the film. Yeah. So it's like it's very, very rigidly structured, yeah. you have like a half-hour first act, thirty-five-minute third act, and like a, you know, a sort of forty-five-minute um, uh, second In, act yeah. with a very clear kind of midpoint, which yeah. is, um, I think, which I would put the midpoint as um, you know the moment when the ingredients start arriving for the feast. Yeah. I Yeah, somewhere around that, like either the lottery ticket coming
1: becoming real and they're yeah. counting the money and then getting the ingredients. Yeah. Um, one thing I wrote down a little question mark on. I don't know if there's really an antagonist in this film. What would you
0: consider the antagonist in Babette's Feast*? I think the antagonist in the film is regret. Okay. Um, it's uh, it's like it's such a, a sort of a beautiful film. I, I was um, there's especially a couple of films, a couple of scenes that I found extremely moving. I had like a tear in my eye, and one of them is when like the elderly general. Yeah. So Lawrence is an old man now. Yeah. He tells Martine that, um, that you know, even though he hasn't seen her for you know, for 50 years, whatever, yeah, he says that he tells her that, that you know, he's been with her every day yeah, since yeah. he saw her yeah. and he will be with her for every day that remains. And it's such a yeah. kind of a sweet thing. And it's just, just this there's this little sudden wave of, oh, well, what might have been, yeah, and it's like a moment of, of regret, um, and kind of reflection of you know, did I make the right choices I think that's I think that's the antagonism in the same way the other thing there's some scene which happens very shortly after that which I also found moving I don't know whether I had something in my eye at this point in the film then, if I could get (laughs) the dance back during this kind of 15 minute sequence but um, after they've all had the the dinner and all the kind of the elderly parishioners they um, you know they leave and they're all kind of in their 70s they're all kind of really old and a bit doddery and they leave the dinner and they all um, stand around the well at the center of this tiny village and they yeah. hold hands. Yeah. Um and it's you know it's like they you know they're all elderly but they're all kind of like primary age school children again as yeah. well. It's this really sort of beautiful image of friends kind of aging together and sort of you know washing away their petty disagreements in you know the water from the well or the wine that they have just drunk. Yeah. Um, and instead you know like they, they have this kind of perspective of um you know what they you know what they really value and what's really important
1: i think they they've also all had this sort of jolt of something very very different in the sense that i think it's a very sober society so they're drinking this fantastic wine they're eating these <laughs> if we've seen their diets their day-to-day diets of uh uh, bread and ale, soup and and just endless fish stews, and uh, this is a very very different meal. And I I just imagine them as being buzzed. You can actually sort of feel them having this wonderful <laughs> buzz or this just this inebriation that um, really brings such joy. And it's just the power of her food, I think. But also, yeah. it's just one powerful moment um, that they share together. And it, in the in the book in the short story, there's this one line that I love that I don't think was in the film. It's um, she writes, "They have been given one hour of the millennium." <laughs> I love that line, and you know the stars are out. The book has snow, I think, a lot more. I shouldn't say book; the story has a lot more snow in it, and it's intentionally. There's no snow in the film uh, until yeah. the very end, um, but it it really is just this beautiful moment. And there, I think when you talked about regret, very well, I thought um, I think that's the kind of thing is there these just little moments that got by some of the characters, and they're 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 wondering. You know what would have been but in that moment where they're just dancing around the well and it's just beautiful the ladies are holding candles outside and everyone's dancing and the stars are super bright it's just that i really got that sense of oh this is a, a night that they will always remember and this is a really a moment that no one's going to regret like he's he's leaving general lawrence is leaving there um with somehow without regret he seems very happy at that point you know and he was i think also just to have this closure with uh martine about uh yeah, him being or her presence in his life uh, until the day
0: he dies. I think that was just great. If you had to, if you had to boil down the theme of the film, if you were to explain to somebody you know, what it was trying to say, how would he phrase it? What do you, th- what do you, think, what do you think it's about?
1: I think to a certain extent it's about um, art. And I think there's a connection to the menu in here too. It's just like uh, Babette. And, and then having read the short story really kind of helps a little bit because I, I think, you know, Babette sees herself as just an artist, a fantastic artist, and she will give up her lottery winnings to create one meal um, just to, because her second best is never good enough. She talks about that. <laughs> um, so it's this idea of even if it's just one moment and one work of art, you've you've got to be the artist that you are inside. And it's in this – it's all told within this – very austere society of no one really standing out no one shining there's uh, philip has a great um singer and uh that's why achille papin the opera singer is really he there's this wonderful scene where he's uh, teaching her a song and uh it gets it's a seductive thing from uh, um from a mozart opera and uh it's at a time when uh like early going in the film where Philippa and Martine's father is still alive. And they're just these wonderful uh, (laughs) juxtapositions. I think there could have been more, Um, but it's uh, Martine and and the father listening in one room. And there's this seduction scene being sung uh, by two fantastic voices in the next and uh, eyes are rolling and it seems very inappropriate, but it's, it really underlines how wonderful a singer um, Philippa was or is, and that she could have been an opera star. Um, And she's an artist at heart. And I think the last moment, um, I think that Philippa borrows from Papena. He says this in the book. I'm not sure that he um, says it in the film. Well, she definitely says it um, to Babette in the film where it's really the climax moment. And she's talking about, you know, Babette's maybe discussing her regrets. And, you know, she had no control over um, war and and violence breaking out in in, in France and ending ending her career as an artist. But, you know, she's just adamant, I'm a great artist. And uh, at the end, uh, Philippa's saying... "Um, you will enchant the angels in heaven you will enchant the angels mm. and it's something that i think Papen said as well so for me it's about um artistry um to a great extent i think there's some other great themes in there but for me that was the biggest one that i took away and the one that connects i think with the menu on on some level is that uh, these chefs are great artists
0: and uh, they need to be honored for their work i guess I did read that the film is a favourite of, you know, a lot of religious leaders. that The Archbishop of Canterbury kind of has oh, said, oh, I love this film. And the Pope kind of loves this film. Um, uh, but the kind of the message that I took away, actually, is, was a largely materialist one, I think. Mm-hmm. I think um, although the community in the film is a religious one, I think the message of the film is that the soul and the body are the same thing. Mm hmm. Um, that you know, when you you feed the body, you feed the soul because they're it's not they're not just connected; they're the same thing, really. Yeah. In the same way that when the the elderly parishioners are gathered around the well, you, you can see that the elderly people contain the young people that they used to be. That they actually they're the same. Yeah, yeah. the kind of the, the, yeah the buzz they've got from the wine, which has caused them to kind of open their hearts. Um, it seems like a sort of like a materialist view yeah. of a spiritual community mm. um the, all, all things are connected because all things are the same. I think it's a yeah, just a beautiful film, but not yeah. yeah not just beautiful, it's funny as well i uh, yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that, yeah,
1: I think it's a comedy it's it on this I probably laughed more it's possibly <laughs> I laughed more in this film than I did in the menu um and i, I think the comic moments are great and uh it, it's it it's hard to like you couldn't bill it, you couldn't sell it as a comedy, but there are definitely some very lovely witty moments. Um, and some juxtapositions that are great. There's this one where yeah. the sisters are talking to the parishioners. They're they're really worried about this crazy. Um perhaps a di- diabolical meal that Babette is going to serve and they just get the the parishioners to sort of all agree that they're not going to complain about the food or make any comments and then they're doing this with a, there's an image of Christ on the wall and the, the, it cuts directly to this wheelbarrow full of a cow's head and blood and guts and entrails <laughs> and, and it's just, uh, it's just fantastic and it's the kind of thing that just makes
0: me laugh because it was just very well designed as a, as a, as a cut. I've written my notes here just while I was watching the film. I've written... Um, I am laughing for joy. This is the greatest restaurant ever. (laughs) I uh, just, I I think it's, um, it's tricky to really portray food properly on screen because, you know, food is so much about, I know people, you know, laugh and sneer at this notion of mouthfeel, which comes up in the menu, but um, the information that you get from food is, has so much more to do with texture and smell and, so many parameters that you can't convey through cinema. Yep. Um so, you know, really saying something profound about food with cinema should be a bit of a non-starter because, you know, these are barely connected worlds. And yet, um I did leave both of these films feeling half like I had enjoyed a sumptuous meal. Um there there's some other
1: sort of themes that I did think came out. So you're mentioning materialism. For me um there was such simplicity in the, the 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 lives of the the followers of the of the pastor and, and it seemed like a very very austere society um and it it contrasts with me a lot like we're in a day and age where you know like the most likes on social media <laughs> or not- notoriety at all costs um are really important I mean the, the notion of people like electing to live and die simply and just modestly but as excellent people um it's kind of foreign it's for it just as foreign as incomprehensible to us as a, like a subtitled um danish art film from the mid 1980s it's just it's out of place <laughs> these are sort of values and themes that are seem way out of place but for me that's what it was just the the excellence of simplicity that tiny little village um and showing that just you know, these artists passing through it i thought that was very interesting uh uh, contrast as well. So for me, I think there's it kind of continues on that artistry level, but just the, uh, the 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 simple life being celebrated. I thought that was definitely a theme in there as
0: well. Well, before we kind of try and tie tie these two films together, or I kind of try and do a bit of a synthesis, yeah. Um, let's let's quickly play a uh, new game, blatantly stolen from another podcast. Who am I? Oh. Uh, Who am I? So. <laughs> So re- the reason we go to the movies is to see ourselves, uh, but ourselves made different. That's, yeah. I don't know, that's my theory. Um, having watched these two films, Oof. did you see yourself on screen this week in either of them? Um,
1: I answered first last time, so I'm going to pass the question right back to you. Yeah. Uh, You're talking about both films, The Menu or Babette's Yeah.
0: I I didn't feel very much like any of the characters yeah. in The Menu. Maybe I am... Maybe I'm flattering myself. But I tell you who I really recognised um was uh the coachman in Babette's feast. So when the general and his oh, yeah. aunt turn up to this <laughs> meal, you know, they're kind of they're brought by a coachman and the coachman then just he sits in the kitchen and um you know and he sort of you know eats the dishes before they go out yeah. into the main dining room you know, when he gets to enjoy the wine and if you know, he does a tiny tiny bit of work by grinding the coffee but otherwise basically he just kind of enjoys this food for, yeah like, for, oh. for free and then at the very end of the evening um you know babette tells him thanks for your help and he says you're welcome <laughs> as you long as he leaves <laughs> <a> bad- um, <laughs> that guy's got my role in the kitchen absolutely down pat good. that is that is me to a a t good choice <laughs> very good choice um I'm going to point to a character
1: in each film, um, but for probably similar reasons. Um, I'm going to say John Leguizamo, who
0: plays this um,
1: remorseful actor.
0: Oh, you're doing yourself, Dan. You are not like that guy.
1: And Achille Papin, I think the opera singer, too. I, I love these, these artists who um, just have regrets. Uh, very human, I think. Uh, and I, I love the John Leguizamo. The film that the chef hates is called the Calling Dr. Sunshine, I think. <laughs> 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 which sounds so terrible and um i could just see like just making artistically making some poor choices i think i could uh uh respect that and uh just having those <laughs> regrets so those are my two characters i love the the opera singer is fantastic and that scene where there's this seduction in the uh in the the drawing room or the where the piano is um it's just so good and it's so funny too i just love that i think it was one of the funnier scenes where eyes are turning in the next room and uh they're just imagining what's
0: going on in, in the in the rehearsal. It's just fantastic. So I'm gonna say, yeah, leguzamo and Achille Pepin. God, that that um that Mozart scene actually, it's so beautifully acted, isn't yeah. it? Because because they are the, the daughter in that scene, she's very, very nearly charmed by him, isn't yeah. she? Yeah. She very nearly tips over the edge. And then she kind of reins it back in, and yeah. it's, but it, and it's all just done, um, you know, with with her eyes and her, yeah. her kind of face is just beautifully done. It's so lovely.
1: There's another scene that really sticks with me that I'd like to talk about a little bit, um, um, because it's it's the way that Babette is int- introduced to us. She she comes um, in this storm. She herself is kind of a storm. She's just a mess of uh, of wet clothes and wet wet hair and and chilled um, body. And she arrives in this storm, um, and You get the exposition. I thought it was really quite clever. Um, It's a letter from Papin to the sisters Mm -hmm. to introduce Babette to them. And it it really struck me for a number of reasons. I thought it was actually done quite elegantly for an exposition scene, but in part it had to do with the language, I think. Um, The letter is um, in French. So these Danish sisters uh, are reading the letter to find out about babette and I think obviously to, to get the audience to up to date on on Babette's story um but there are these wonderful turns of the girl the the ladies putting on their glasses and and then they read <laughs> in French, so these are Danish characters reading in french um and you don't see this in film. people don't write letters anymore. people don't read anymore, and you don't yeah. really have that many polyglots in film, so it's just it really made me think it was a, it's a lovely it's a lovely scene because you're also getting Babette's story. she can't speak a you know word of Danish at this point. And I, I just thought, it got me thinking about comparing to, like, someone today using Google Translate to understand some semi-literate text message. And I just thought, Alexa, please read this letter. <laughs> sure. In what language? 1870s French with a Danish accent, please. Sure. Here you are. I mean, it just, it, it's just a scene that you can't happen in American cinema and just doesn't happen very often in any cinema anymore. It just really... Just a mundane scene, but it was, it was filmed wonderfully, it was acted wonderfully, and it, the whole setup was just fantastic. And I just I don't see scenes like that anymore. I don't know if we're going to. Um, and I know we're going to do a popcorn counter probably on cell phones eventually, and I just think uh,
0: these, are, <laughs> these
1: are things that technology has changed. You can't have that. I mean, obviously, if you set it in the 1870s, as this film is set, um, then it makes sense. But um, uh, it was just a wonderful moment.
0: I did love the moment when, when uh, Papin, the, the singer, turns up at the house to suggest that he teach... Um, uh, Philippa yeah. how to sing um, And you know, he does that you know, wonderful 19th century thing of he, he presents The father with a little calling card yeah. and The only thing written on the calling card is his name yeah. but My god I wish people Still did that yeah. because the number of times I've met Someone new and then forgotten their name yeah. 15 seconds after meeting them yeah. Could everybody please just hand out a little card With your name written on <laughs> you know, That is a useful utilitarian Bit of cardboard that we should bring back yeah. Oh my goodness Agreed yeah Ah, so so. What well, can we bring these films together? Do they do they belong together? Is it a, re, a prop good double bill? This too,
1: I think it is. I think there's a fantastic um, celebration of food in both. I mean, I, I can't deny the the, uh, the culinary art, artistry of uh, the menu, um, and it's it's totally on display. I mean, you really see Babette cooking stuff and on you know like antiquated stoves and things like yeah. that. Um, but she's she's creating with such joy, and she looks. I mean, the actress looks like a fantastic chef in there. So I think there's definitely on the food level, it's it's very obvious. Um, I think yes, on on the subtle subtle themes of class and uh, simplicity versus complexity, and and the, who we consider the the more civilized, um, maybe a famous opera singer or a general versus you know just common folk. Um, I think there's a lot going on in both films, um, and I think the. Like the famous people or the, the the well-to-do people in Babette's Feast are not worshipped in the way that um, I think in that film. It's, there's there's more worship of this simple life, and um, and and Babette, you know, she really achieves her some of her notoriety when she's not famous as a chef. I mean, the, the way that the yeah. the simple villagers love her food when she's gone for a few days, you know, it's just, <laughs> it's a step down in gourmet eating. <laughs> um, yes. So I think they are celebrated more than the the kitchen staff. And I, I come back to that kitchen staff in, in the menu because that's the hardest part for me of that film is just seeing how, uh, obsequious I guess they are, um, in regards to the chef
0: and just accepting their fate. Um, um so i think i think there are ways to connect it um. But, um the thing that struck me was there's this comment that tyler makes really early on in the menu yeah. which is so applicable to Babette's feast where he says that um chefs you know make food using the same raw materials that god uses to make life yeah oh, there <laughs> you know, and, you go. and that's you know that's absolutely what kind of Babette's feast is about somehow yeah. she's kind of she's using yeah like a, you know a cow's head and a turtle t- to make you know like this kind of spiritual religious experience yeah, yeah. you know it's absolutely it's food doing the work of god yeah and um, there's a really kind of yeah ex- explicit connection between food and eternity yeah um in in both films and entrapment too when you think about it
1: i mean the 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 flock that follows the pastor they're just as trapped in that small town and more so in the in the little yellow house as it's mentioned in the in the short story, um, you've got a, a captive yeah. audience. It's probably the same number of diners, too, if you really look at it. It's, it's one of these situations oh, where yeah. it's one, I think I counted 11 in, uh, in uh, the menu, and I think there are 12 because the general shows up as an unannounced guest. <laughs> another unannounced <laughs> guest. I mean, I, it's another one of these situations
0: where it's impossible to believe that the writers of the menu hadn't seen Babette's yeah. Feast. Yeah. The thing I've written in my notes here is that the, like the, in the menu, uh, the, the food is used as a way to separate people, isn't mm-hmm. it? It's yeah. kind of it's about this this line between the kitchen and the dining room. There's the haves and the have-nots. There's yeah. the servers and the served. Yeah. There is the initiated, who know about food, and the ignorant who do not. Yeah. And also there are the survivors and the dead. It's all about separating people and drawing lines. Whereas. Um, you know, Babette's Feast is kind of it's like the opposite. Well, so I, we said earlier that the that menu is a foodie film about late stage capitalism. Yeah. And Babette's Feast is a foodie film about liberty, fraternity and equality. Yeah. I think. Yeah. Now, you're at the end of the menu, you know, basically everyone dies. Um, whereas at the end of Babette's Feast, you know, people are born again. Yeah. I mean, in, in a way, at the end of Babette's Feast, you know, all of the characters have recognized their mortality um so you know they have you know, i think you know they kind of they have seen death but they're okay with it you know they are kind of born again aren't they yeah well i mean i love that
1: because um he chef says in the menu we're all gonna die tonight um and to a certain extent in babette's feast the same thing happens maybe they you know these old grudges are buried among certain yeah. characters and they they're almost born again you mentioned that 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 scene around the well and they're dancing as children and there there's a line sure about the uh, earlier about that um children um love one another i think that's something that the pastor said um so they've gone back to this point of love and and sort of youth and uh, uh certain parts of their past have died and you know, we're talking about regrets and, and remorse that's gone um so there is a death that that creates new life and it's that's optimistic in babette's feast and it's very pessimistic i think in the menu but they go together well
0: I wrote down this little catchphrase they they keep coming up with in Babette's Feast, which is what Mercy and Truth shall know one another. Yeah, um, you know, and there's there's lots of Mercy and Truth in Babette's Feast, and there's very little of it in the, in the menu. Um, yeah. Well, man, wow, what a great pairing! Uh, we have just got time uh, to talk about also playing at this theatre. <laughs> I, I went I went first with who am you Your turn to go first this time. What else have you seen lately?
1: Um, I've been on something of a documentary binge, I guess. So I saw, and I'm trying to remember the title exactly, I think it's called This House Rocks, which is a, uh, a look into uh, the events of January 6, 2021, here oh. in uh, the United States, down in Washington, D.C. It's sort of the setup for it all and sort of an examination of... Uh, Some of the troublemakers there. So that was on one of the streamers, probably Netflix. Um, And then on public television here, um, we have a documentary filmmaker you may have heard of named Ken Burns.
0: He's done a lot of big documentaries on, I don't know, Benjamin Franklin. Yeah, I've mostly heard of him because in the Apple software to make... To make um, you know, iMovie uh, like videos, yeah. you have a button for the Ken Burns effect. That was the only oh. time I'd ever heard of Ken Burns, but, <laughs> but but now I understand.
1: He's a really good documentary filmmaker. He, he he's one of these guys who, like the old master painters, had a studio where you've probably got twelve people doing most of the work, and he's just overseeing it. Um, because um, he cranks out documentaries, and I think they all sort of automatically go to PBS. Um, and he had a documentary series in the fall called the US and the Holocaust um, so I've been watching that I think I've'm about halfway through there are three long longish episodes of two plus hours um, and it's a really honest look at and it's a frighteningly honest look at um, really how the Nazis and Hitler borrowed from a lot of things that they'd learned from American history and uh, American actions um, to really initiate and and, and execute the, the entire Holocaust it's and, and you know taking over the German Republic. So oof. Oof, it's good. And I mean, I haven't finished it yet, but um, you know, I think there's a lot of fantastic work going on in there because he's using old, old archival film footage and making it look good. I think a lot of the work just goes into just taking, you know, but there's a lot of stuff, a lot more uh, live film of Hitler than I ever imagined. And it's been just the restoration that goes into his documentaries is very impressive, but also just how it's all pieced together and so that's what I've been watching lately. Nothing really uplifting. <laughs> Please tell me you've got optimistic, romantic comedies and things well, for me to hear about.
0: Well, well, well. We aimed for optimistic, and we made a terrible, terrible mistake. So, also playing at our theatre last uh, Saturday, we uh, gathered around for a bit of you know, family. Uh, family telly uh, ordered a pizza and we watched Adventures in Babysitting, also from 1987. <laughs> wow! But actually, quite different to Babette's Feast. I'd never seen it, and it's um, it's Elizabeth Shoe. I, no. it I think it was if it was Bonavista, which was like the sort of the slightly more grown up arm of yeah. of um, Disney. Oh yeah, yeah. And we kind of thought, oh, this would be a reasonable family film. I never saw this. It's probably good fun. You know, Elizabeth Shoe had just recently been in Back to the Future Part Two, yeah. and you know, it came with a pedigree, but oh my goodness me, it is um, yeah, shockingly <laughs> dreadful. Oh, no. you know, it's just about functional as a story, but there's all this kind of weird 80s sex stuff, yeah. um, which is, yeah. yeah, oh my God. <laughs> yes, it's, yeah, sex stuff, and then also kind of yeah, weird, uncomfortable racism, and oh. yes, <laughs> all sorts of terrible, terrible things to ruin our family evenings oh. viewing. So, I mean, I did laugh. There were a few... Gags and some chuckles, but um, did leave me feeling yeah, dirty and confused, oh, and having no. a lot to explain to my son. So, um, who chooses the films in your in your household? Well, not me. In, in future, <laughs> I think I've lost that job. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. Yeah, bad programming. Yeah, absolutely. Well, okay. So, um, well, this has been a a delicious oh, good good touch. Yeah, uh, delicious experience. Tasty. Thanks for. Yeah, you recommended these films, and I'm going to get you to recommend all the films now, I think, uh, yeah, for the show and for my Saturday evening viewing as well. Oh, yeah, maybe you need uh, need an intervention, that's for sure. (laughs) I need someone with taste to pick Mm. the films in my house. Um, We will be back next week uh, with a popcorn counter where we'll be laughing and joking about death. And then a uh, week after that, we're going to be back talking about donkeys, aren't we? Is that right? Asses, yes. Um, I, if all goes well, <laughs> we are going to
1: see uh, EO, which is a uh, Polish film that just came out, I think, this in 2022. And comparing that to, ooh, O'Hassad Baltazar from uh, Robert Bresson from the maybe 50s or is it maybe 60s?
0: It's donkey in this country. Yeah, it's It's definitely donkey. (laughs) (laughs) They're both donkey films. That's all you need to know. (laughs) Thanks uh, for listening and uh, join us next time. All the best.